0: Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was January 31st, 1919. It had been just over two months since World War I ended, and Scotland was feeling the economic impact of its resolution. People frustrated with the lack of jobs in the long 54-hour work week had already been striking for days. But on this day, those frustrations rose to a climax. Somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000 people gathered in George Square in Glasgow, Scotland, to protest. And all this commotion scared the British government. Government officials were already on edge because of other uprisings around Europe. Scotland's secretary, Robert Monroe, had even declared that the Glasgow situation wasn't just a strike, but a Bolshevist uprising. So the protest became a battle of police versus demonstrators on a day that came to be known as Bloody Friday. Nobody died in the riots, but accounts of the day's events have gone on to reach a mythical status in Scottish history. Scotland had sent a lot of its men to fight in the First World War. Glasgow alone had enlisted 200,000 men and Glasgow was a hub of industry during the war. Clydeside, the region along the Clyde River in Scotland, was home to a bustling shipbuilding industry. The shipyards at Clydeside were the biggest provider of vessels to the Royal Navy, and the region produced a lot of armaments. So when Scottish men left for war, a bunch of women joined the workforce to keep cranking out ships and munitions for the fight. But just because business was booming, didn't mean business was good. Workers' conditions were poor. People worked long days and weren't paid well for it. Tensions were rising between factory owners and industrial workers, civil unrest was brewing, and the organized labor movement was growing in Glasgow. So after the war ended in November 1918, troops were demobilizing and returning to Scotland, looking for work. But munitions factories were closing, and both industrial workers and returning soldiers found themselves out of work. So the Clyde Workers Committee, made up of engineering shop stewards from different trade unions, decided to advocate for less hours for current workers. If people only worked 40 hours a week, there would be more jobs available for the soldiers who were coming home from war. But factory owners, on the other hand, wanted to keep a longer work week so there would be less jobs and a reserve of unemployed people. On January 18th, leaders of the Clyde Workers' Committee called a strike to demand a 40-hour work week. And on January 27th, the strikes began. At first, employers, trade union officials, and the government just waved off the strike, dismissing it as a minor dispute that would fizzle out soon enough. But by the 30th of January, it was clear that was definitely not the case. Tens of thousands of workers in Clydeside were striking. Electricity supply workers and miners had even gone on strike in sympathy. The Clyde Workers Committee sent out flying pickets, or people who travel to places where workers are on strike to incite more people to strike, to help spread the mission faster. On January 29th, Strikers rallied in Glasgow and marched to George Square. A group of leaders from the Clyde Workers Committee, including Willie Gallagher, Manny Shenwell, and David Kirkwood, met with the Lord Provost of Glasgow at the Glasgow City Chambers. They requested he ask the council to tell employers they needed to grant workers a 40-hour work week. The Lord Provost said he couldn't give them an answer just yet and to come back on the 31st. But as people waited in the square to hear the Lord Provost reply, the police began attacking demonstrators, seemingly unprovoked. The police baton charged the crowd and the demonstrators fought back. Gallagher punched the chief constable and was beaten. Kirkwood was hit with batons. People threw water bottles at police, smashed windows, and looted. As the violence escalated, police retreated but the fighting continued for hours. 19 police officers and 34 strikers were injured. Martial law had not been declared, so the government didn't have the authority to send out troops. The War Cabinet met in London and discussed the problem in Glasgow, but it was the Sheriff of Lanarkshire who requested a military deployment. The troops arrived after the riots were over and they started patrolling the power stations and set up tanks in the area. By Sunday, the city settled down and the troops left after about two weeks. Gallagher and Shinwell were arrested for inciting a riot and put on trial. They were convicted and got jail time, but other strike leaders put on trial were acquitted. Workers had not won the strike for a 40-hour working week So they returned to an agreement union officials had already reached with employers for a 47-hour work week. I'm Yves Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little bit more about history today than you did yesterday. Hey guys, I know that I sound a little bit raspy today. I'm recovering from a cold, but thank you so much for bearing with me. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for another day in history. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that really takes to heart the phrase, you learn something new every day. The day was January 31st, 1939. Jewish teenager Renia Spiegel was living in Poland, months before the outbreak of World War II, when she wrote the first entry in her now-published diary. Spiegel died in the Holocaust, but her diary has since shed light on her life under Soviet and Nazi rule. Spiegel was born in a village in Poland in 1924. Her parents were Rusa and Bernard Spiegel, and she had a younger sister named Ariana, in 1938, Arianna, a child actress, went to live in Warsaw with Rusa in pursuit of her career. Aranya went to live with her grandparents in Chemyschul, a town in Poland. Arianna went back to Chemyschul that summer, returning without her mother. On January 31st, 1939, when she was 15 years old, Spiegel began writing in her diary. In her first diary entry, Spiegel wrote the following in part. Why did I decide to start a diary today? Has something important happened? Have I discovered that my friends are keeping diaries of their own? No, I just want a friend. Somebody I can talk to about my everyday worries and joys. Somebody who will feel what I feel, believe what I say, and never reveal my secrets. No human being could ever be that kind of friend. She wrote about how her life used to be in Warsaw, how she missed her mother, and how she felt like she had no real home. She also wrote about her school and classmates. As the start of World War II loomed, Spiegel continued to write in her diary about her friends, family, boys, sadness, nostalgia, and war. She also wrote poems and drew in the diary. But by September of 1939, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union occupied Poland, and the country was divided between the two invaders, with the Nazis in the west and the Soviets in the east. Ruza was stuck in Nazi-controlled territory, while Aranya and Ariana were on the Soviet side. The two children and their grandfather left town, while their grandmother stayed behind. Their father disappeared during the war and was presumed killed. As World War II steadily intensified, Spiegel kept attending school in Chemischl and fell in love with a boy named Sigmund Schwarzer. In 1941, days after her first kiss with Sparzer, the Third Reich declared war on the Soviet Union. Erena and other Jewish people began having to wear a white armband with a blue Star of David on it. The Germans began establishing ghettos in Poland. In July of 1942, as the Nazis murdered thousands of Jewish and Polish people, they set up a sealed ghetto in Chemyschul. Erena and her friends and relatives were ordered to stay in the ghetto. Zygmunt, who was working with the local resistance, managed to get Areña and Ariana out of the ghetto. He set Areña and his parents up in the attic of a house where his uncle lived. He took Ariana to a friend's father, and he took over Areña's diary, writing about his efforts to save his girlfriend and family. The Nazis executed Areña and Schwarzer's parents on July 30, 1942, when they found the attic hiding spot. Irena was only 18 years old when she was killed. Schwarzer wrote the last words in the diary. He wrote about the execution of Irena and his parents, expressing his anguish at their deaths. Schwarzer survived the Holocaust and eventually passed the diary to Rutze and Ariana, now named Elizabeth Bellock. The two women had fled to the U.S. after World War II. The nearly 700-page diary stayed in a safe deposit box in New York City for more than 40 years. It was published in Polish in 2016, and in 2019, the first full English translation of the diary was published. The diary is noted as a unique and well-written personal account of everyday life under Soviet and Nazi occupation in Poland. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Looking for a content a little more sophisticated than cat memes in your feed? Connect with us on social media at Podcast. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at iHeartMedia.com. I hope you liked this show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.